heads and join our hearts. Father above, we hallow Your name in all the ways we understand that word to mean. And we recognize that You are greater yet. You are wonderful and beautiful to us. And You are the supreme value of the universe. Even though most of that universe does not recognize You as such. You preserve our life, and for that we are forever thankful. You are wonderful. We humbly ask, in the name of Jesus, that you open our eyes and ears to these words of Jesus in ways that it makes a profound and significant change in how we view our words and how we use them. We ask for strength to repent of making our words at times vacant. Of, of meaning, and at other times using them destructively, and especially when we use them to tear down human beings that are made in Your image. Grant us, Father, understanding, and grant us change. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2003... There was great controversy and there was horrific scandal that rocked, that rocked and shook to the foundation of its core, the chili cook-off world. <laughs> A fellow by the name of Don Estep of Illinois entered the 37th original Terlingua International Frank X. Tolbert Wick Fowler Memorial Championship Chili Cook-Off. His brother had actually won the, uh, the qualifying event, but at the last minute he couldn't make it to Terlingua. So his brother Don said, I'll go in your place and I'll compete in your name. The only problem was his brother Don had never made chili in his life. He didn't know how to boil water. And so he gets to Terlingua, and I don't know if you know where Terlingua is, but it's just on the other side of nowhere, which is just down the street from Marfa, Texas. Don steps in. He makes it to, uh, to, to Terlingua. He doesn't know how to make chili. He doesn't even know what ingredients go into chili, but he has this fantastic idea. He's going to go around to all of the different booths where they're, they're giving samples of the chili the competitors are making, and he, he, he takes a bite, but he gets a little bit more, and he collects all of these samples, and he puts it in a big pot, and all of these samples becomes his entry into the tasting competition. Hey, can you imagine all the different flavors that go in to make that chili? And then on top of that, he wins. <laughs> and when they announced that he had won, he immediately felt like, oh my goodness, I have made a terrible mistake. And he had. People were enraged when they found out that he had been dishonest about his own chili. In fact, it was somebody from the Wick Fowler camp that said, you know what, this guy from Illinois, we need to post guards at the border to make sure that this guy's not allowed into the state anymore. Now, you know as well as I do, that what is true in the chili world, the fact that there can be dishonesty, the fact that words can be used in, 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 in wrong ways, what is true in the chili world can also be true in the world of words. Senior adults, the older you get, the more years that you live, do you find that it's easier to control what you say 
Do you find it easier to make sure that your words are always the right kind of words? How about in marriages? Husbands and wives. Do you ever find that you say things to your spouse that you wish you could take them back? Husbands, have you ever said anything to your wife that you wish as soon as it came out of your mouth that you could take it back? The answer to that is yes. Wives, have you ever said anything to your husband that hurt their feelings and you didn't mean it that way, but that's the way that it came out because you were thoughtless with your words and you wish with all of your strength you could take it back? Now, one of the things that Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount is words and how we use them. Now, the big difference between Jesus' world and our world is that He lived predominantly in an oral society. Things were passed down by, by, by oral tradition and by storytelling and, and sharing words. We live in a culture that's a little bit different. The only kind of, of words that really have a lot of, of credibility and the only kinds of words that we consider to be binding are the kinds of words that are written down in a contract or some kind of a legal document, which the flip side of that is that we use our verbal words, the ways that we talk with one another, we use words in such a way that we, we, we diminish them of their power, at least of their importance. Because they still retain that tremendous power. But we diminish their importance. We diminish their significance. And we say whatever it is that we think that we need to say to get by in the moment or to get ahead in that moment, thinking that the only thing that is really going to be binding and the only thing that is really going to be contractually held our feet to the fire, hold our feet to the fire, is going to be that written word. That is a huge mistake. Because you know as well as I do that the spoken word is the predominant way that we as human beings and that we inside of this church family relate to one another. It's not just Facebook. It's not just emails. It's not just text. We like to get on the phone sometimes and talk to each other. We like, we like to interact with one another. You go to Starbucks today and what do you find? People drinking coffee? Well, sometimes. Sometimes. You know what they go to Starbucks for? To talk. You know what Starbucks says? They say, we're in the people business. We create the atmosphere. We, inc- we create the environment in which people can get together and interact. And you know what they're doing when they're interacting? Of course, they're drinking some kind of good-tasting coffee. But they're using words. They're speaking to one another. And it's a huge mistake to downgrade the weight of a spoken word because speaking is still the chief way that we interact with one another. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus insists that His disciples live consistently with the words they speak. I want to say that again. Jesus insists His disciples live consistently with the words they speak. In the text that Corey just read for us, you'll notice that Jesus says a lot about how you use your words and oaths and keeping promises and and, and all of that. He says, you know, don't, don't make oaths that are, or don't make, don't, don't break the oaths that you have made. And when you make an oath, you know, you've got to keep it to the Lord. And don't swear by heaven and don't swear by earth and by Jerusalem or by your head. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. In, in simple English, be honest and forthright with your words. Because if you're not, he says, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Let's say that verse together. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Let's say it one more time. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. The big question this morning then, how do you keep the evil from your words? 
first thing you want to do is recognize that every word you speak, every word you say is an observed word. It is watched. When I was growing up, I remember discussions in church about you know, Jesus forbidding the swearing in God's name of, of anything. And I got a little bit worried because I like to watch Perry Mason and Ironside. And one of my favorite movies was To Kill a Mockingbird. And it made me kind of nervous in case I was ever called to testify in court. And you can imagine that scene. You know, the judge is not going to like it very much. Mark Absher comes in. He is seated. They put the Bible out in front of him and say, Will you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth? And I say, You know what, judge? I really don't swear. I just promise I'm going to tell you the truth. He's not going to like that very much at all. And the bottom line is that's really not what Jesus was talking about. In fact, Jesus made a sworn statement in court to the Sanhedrin in Matthew chapter 26. You remember that, that Jesus is just silent and silent and silent before His accusers, right before they condemn Him to death on the cross and take Him to the Romans. And the high priest of all the people that could have said this, it's the high priest that says to Him, I charge you under what? What's that word, church? Oh, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, Jesus doesn't say, you know what, I I really can't swear to that, but truth be told, I am. What He says after He has been put under oath of the living God is, you have said so. That's His statement. So what did Jesus mean about the oaths and the swearing by, by God's name? Well, you know, in the Old Testament, it was pretty plain about the use of words. You go to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7, you shall not take the Lord your God's name in what? In vain. You go to Leviticus chapter 19 verse 12, you shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Go to Numbers chapter 30, another instance. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation... He shall not violate His Word. He shall not violate His Word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of His mouth. And so that's the way that the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, was instructed as to use their words and oaths and, 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 and how their words had weight when they made promises and so on and so forth. But by the time you get to Jesus' time, in the first century A.D., there were incredible distinctions that began to evolve in the swearing and the making of oaths and the practices that surrounded them you know, during that time of Jesus. For instance, swearing by heaven or earth during the time of Jesus was considered to not be binding at all. You could say, you know, I swear by heaven or I swear by earth, and you would say that you would do something, but everybody in that community knew that that really wasn't as binding as it could be. It would be like, like Tony Soprano saying, you know, I swear on my mother's grave. And everybody knows his mother's still alive. It doesn't mean anything. Or when somebody says, I swear on the grave of my children. It doesn't mean anything because the children are still alive. Also, swearing by Jerusalem was not binding unless it was a swearing toward Jerusalem. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, you're going down to, to, to town to have this business transaction ratified, making oaths, making promises, and you have to figure out when this guy is making this promise whether or not he is precisely looking towards Jerusalem at the time that he makes that oath. If not, then he has a loophole. The prevalent teaching was that nothing was binding unless it was sworn in the name of God. 
And so by the time that Jesus gets up there on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, just to the west of Capernaum, and gives the Sermon on the Mount, there were levels of truth-telling and promise-keeping in Israel. And Jesus looks all of those people in the eye, and He says, if you're going to be My disciple... Now, He's talking to people that, that recognize God, that recognize the Word of God. He says, if you are going to be My disciple, that kind of understanding of truth-keeping will not do. And the reason is, you can't swear by heaven as if God isn't there. And you can't swear by earth as if God isn't there. I mean, for goodness sake, He says it's His footstool. The point is that God is everywhere. And because God is everywhere, every word you speak, every word you say is observed by God Himself. Now, for us to kind of have the impact of that, you know, fall fully upon us, imagine that A&E wanted to make a reality show out of your life, out of my life, for instance, and they wanted to call it Preacher Dynasty. Every day, from the moment that we wake up to the moment that we go to bed, there is a camera and a microphone and a group of people that are following us around and they record everything that we say as a family. They, they record everything that Ellen and I say to each other in the morning and what we say to our children and how we talk on the phone to them and how we interact at meals and how we interact with other people. Every word we say is recorded and filmed on that mic. Now the question is, would that change what comes out of your mouth? You bet it would. You would think twice about what you said and what you spoke to other people based on the fact that every word you say is a watched, observed, and heard word by the Almighty God. And the reality is that God is everywhere. And the reality is that because He's everywhere, every word is observed. You cannot get away from God's appraisal of your words. Every yes. And every no means something because God watches. Many Christians, even long-time Christians, are not familiar with Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 12 where He says, I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word that they have spoken. And some of the older translations, it's vain words, and some of the other translations, it's futile words, it's words that don't have any meaning. Words that don't have any significance. They're empty words that you have spoken. Now in the context, it's about recognizing Jesus and confessing Jesus and the truth speaking about who Jesus is. But he says, for by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be what? You will be what, church? I don't know about you, but that takes my breath away. So you recognize that every word is watched. Number two, you realize kingdom truthfulness in your life. You realize that there is a kingdom truthfulness that, that, that is pervasive in your life. Godly people realize and acknowledge the importance of truth. And notice where this teaching comes in on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Jesus has been talking about things like murder. 
I mean, right after murder, right after adultery, right after lust, right after divorce, come words on how we use our words. Which should indicate to us, if we're very sensitive at all to the reading of this text and and understanding what God is saying to us, it should indicate to us that in a list like this, where how we use our words and our promises, the words we use to make promises and oaths, coming in a list that involves, you know, that includes things like adultery and murder and lust and these kinds of things, that there is no such thing as little half-truths or white lies. According to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the battle for truthfulness is fought in every yes and it's fought in every no. But that's not quite a very modern view of things in the culture that we live in. Not that modern people think that lies are good. We hate it when people lie to us. But equally hateful to us are obligations that have become ugly to us and become hard to keep. And so the promises that we make when that obligation becomes ugly, becomes hateful, becomes difficult to keep, becomes something that can be broken so that we can get out of it. Jesus says when you speak, your yes should be yes and your no should be no. And when you think about it, truthfulness and honesty is as important to your life as forgiveness. You know what forgiveness does? Forgiveness frees you up from a sordid past. And you know what keeping your promises does? It protects you from a sordid future. If you put truthfulness before self-fulfillment, you know what? You're going to get both. But if you put self-fulfillment before truth and before honesty and before promise-keeping, you are going to get neither. The battle is in every yes and in every no. I mean, imagine what kind of world it would be like if everyone that we encounter everyone that we do business with, everybody that we, every human being that we come in contact with, we either, we either know they're lying to us or we expect them at some point in the day, in the conversation, in the interaction, that they're going to tell us a falsehood, that they're going to lie to us, that their yes is really going to mean no and their no is going to mean yes. I mean, what kind of world would it be if politicians don't keep their promises and businessmen don't honor contracts and preachers turn out to be hypocrites? There can be no society, my friends. There can be no society. Drill down deeper. There can be no church that flourishes in a setting like that. Yes and no have to mean something. And Paul tells us that we know God is not mocked. That we reap what we sow. And, and, and Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, the next letter over, he says, instead, we speak the truth in love. We speak the truth in love and we will grow, uh, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. Last thing and we're done. Remember how you are designed. Remember how you are designed. Recognize that every word is watched. Realize kingdom truthfulness in your life and all of your relationships, whether they're in the church or out of the church, in the community or within this community of faith. And remember how you are designed. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 36, he says, And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Now, as a little boy reading that, I, you, 
What, they didn't have L'Oreal products in the first century? They had hair dyes in the first century. What in the world is Jesus referring to? Well, at the base of it, he's saying that humans are creatures and not the Creator, that they are created by God, who is the Creator. And because we are creatures, because God is the Creator, that's the relationship, there is a law of design to our personhood. We don't make it up. It's part of the way that we as human beings have been put together. So, here's the question I'm going to ask everybody here. You don't have to answer because the answer is kind of obvious. But what do adultery, lying to each other, and jumping out of an airplane at 5,000 feet without a parachute have in common? All of them break human beings. All of those, when it comes to human beings, it doesn't work. The reason it doesn't work is in how we are designed. And when we try to break the law of design, it destroys us. Human beings are not designed to, to fly. And when we try to fly, without artificial, contrived means, we get broken. In the same way that human beings are devastated by adultery. In the same way that human beings are fragmented when we flit around in little half-truths and outright falsehoods with one another. Jesus says when it comes to talking and oaths and promises and speaking, let your yes be yes and your no be no. There's this parable that he tells in Matthew chapter 21. There's this fella, he's a farmer, agricultural society, he's an agrarian culture. He has a farm and he has a couple of sons, which farmers love to have sons. He says to one, go out into the field. And that one says, I'm not going to go out into the field. I don't want to do that. I'm going to go hang out with my friends. But after thinking about it, he later repents and he goes into the field and he does the work that his father wanted him to do. And then there's the younger one who seems to be kind of a people pleaser, doesn't want to tell his dad anything that his dad doesn't want to hear, but has ideas and, and uh, you know, desires of his own. And the dad says, you know what, I'd like for you to go out in the field and work. And the son says, yes. But he says, you know what, after dad's, the old man's out the door, he says, I don't think I really want to do that. And he changes his mind and he does not go. And so Jesus asks, after giving this very simple story, he, he asks all these religious leaders around him. He says, which one did the will of his father? And all of the chief priests and the elders, they got it. They answered the first one. And Jesus says, that's right. And then he says, even the prostitutes and tax collectors will go into the kingdom of God before you. How does that happen? The chief priests and the elders would not repent. Instead, they relied on their good works. In other words, they were not honest about their life. The tax collectors and prostitutes, on the other hand, did repent. And in so doing, they were honest and truthful about their life. 
And what Jesus is trying to get across is that honesty and truthfulness about your life is what leads you to Christ's salvation. Of letting your yes be yes and your no be no. That kind of honesty, that kind of truthfulness when it comes to the appraisal of your own life. And dishonesty about your life. I'm, I'm, I'm better than Joe Schmo from Kokomo down the street. Therefore, I'm okay. It's like that that Pharisee saying, God, aren't you glad that I'm not like that tax collector? He's not honest about his life. The first step in Christ being able to change your life is your honesty about needing what it is that He offers. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And we invite, we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front what we invite you to do is to respond to Jesus. To respond to the offer of a different way of living that begins with, with admitting that at, at best we're fake and at worst we're phony slobs when it comes to life. But in so doing, being honest and turning to Him that you can't save yourself. That is, as much as you try, you cannot save yourself. That you're able to turn to Him and to say, I am a sinner. It's the prayer of blind Bartimaeus. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Finish it. A sinner. And Jesus is yes is always yes, and His no is always no. And when He says you'll find rest for your soul and forgiveness for your sins and a gift of His Spirit inside of you and, and, and abundant life and, 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 and st- it feels like a stream of, of, of water, a river flowing out of you. He calls it in another place an abundant life. It's a life of, of truthfulness. It's a clean life. It's not a perfect life, but it's a clean life with a clean conscience. If you're honest with yourself this morning, and you're honest with yourself before God, and you want what it is that He offers. These men are going to be down here at the front. They'd love to receive you this morning and to talk to you about having that kind of salvation. Visit your life today. And you can do it while we stand and praise God together. Uh